Welcome to Law in the Family, a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section, providing insights for lawyers about the practice of family law in Pennsylvania. The information shared during this podcast is for general information purposes only. Nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create, and receipt or listening does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the podcast guests, and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Hello and welcome to the Law and the Family podcast from the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section. I'm Aaron Weems, your host, along with my co-host, Anthony Hoover. And today we are going to be having a conversation with Missy Boyd, who is the head of the domestic relations practice at High Swartz in Norristown, Pennsylvania. And she's also a, a member of the American Academy of Matrimonial Attorneys and has served in various leadership functions uh, over the tenure of her career, including having served as the chair of the family law section of Montgomery County and also served as a member of the American Bar Association Family Law Section and Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section. Good morning, Missy. Good morning. So today we have you on because we'd like to talk about some underutilized discovery tools or perhaps some uh, some, some tips or hints on how to utilize standard civil discovery tools, which oftentimes aren't necessarily utilized or perhaps underutilized by family law attorneys. So to start with, let's kind of begin with maybe an area that, that you find to be helpful or beneficial, which would be requests for admissions under Rule 4014. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Requests for admissions, I think, are a fantastic tool for family litigators. They really need to be in the tool belt for us um, in the discovery process. While you need leave for court um, to pursue discovery and custody matters, certainly if you are pursuing you know, a complex support matter on behalf of a client or equitable distribution on behalf of a client, you can really target issues in, in, and actually even get rid of issues that may be in dispute through the use of requests for admissions. Requests for admissions are basically statements that you want somebody to admit as true right? And so you try to target the opposing party to admit to certain things that will help advance the cause in your case, whatever the issue may be. And what is sort of significant about this? And I think, you know, family law attorneys in general, we also have to be mindful of deadlines. Sometimes we may not um, with regard to discovery and even some other aspects of our family law practice. But requests for admissions out of anything that you have to pay attention to in terms of the deadline, it is the request for admissions. Because there is a requirement once the request for admissions are served on an opposing party that answers to those admissions be supplied within 30 days of service. And if you do not supply answers, then any of those admissions that are presented to you are deemed to be admitted if in fact not denied. And it's pretty significant and can be very significant to a support case, to an equitable distribution case. Sometimes even in custody cases, if you've gotten leave for court to pursue discovery, requests for admissions can be very damning um, as it relates to a shift in primary or physical custody from one parent to another. And, and where the where the rubber meets the road here. So what what would be an example in a su- complex support case that you would identify in a request for admissions? So to me, what comes to mind is the business a business owner or somebody who operates 
a cash business where the dough um, doesn't necessarily meet up with the records that you have in hand. I also think where I've used requests for admissions in support cases is identifying um, employees that are on and off the books. Um, that probably does relate a lot to what I'll say is some of these cat these business businesses where you don't have people reporting their income the way that you know Uncle Sam would have you. But that's where I've used it the most um, is trying to actually get into the nuances and the details and the deep grit as it relates to how a business owner operates his business, his or her business. Yeah, it sounds like almost like cross examination where you're asking a yes or no question in a written form. In Correct. advance of actually having, and you don't have to go to court to do it. Correct. Now, it's probably worth noting Rule 4014 sort of has two caveats. There's the there's the 30 days that Missy just talked about. But then the one exception to that is if you serve requests for admissions at the same time that you serve original process of the action, the defendant does get 45 days. That, those extra 15 days can be important. What I thought was interesting with that rule is that when we, when we deal with a lot of discovery, a lot of times our clients will give answers along the lines of, well, I just don't know. Where in requests for admissions, the rule is pretty specific that the lack of information or knowledge is not a reason to fail to admit or deny to the inquiry and that you basically have to be able to say that the known information is insufficient to be able to to give an answer or a response. So we're kind of contrasting that a little bit from our typical rules that we have in family court, which is that if you don't answer something or everything's deemed denied, if not otherwise admitted, now we're kind of going to the other, swinging the other direction where it's going to be admitted unless specifically denied. In, in your experience, have you seen where, have you had situations where the admission or the denial has been subsequently contradicted in court? Or has it really just been a discovery tool that has led to other other things? It really has been a discovery tool. Um, the the only, the other instance that comes to mind is I did actually in a real, I, I represented a man who had a real estate business and he had lots of buying and selling of real estate, some of which was hard to track. So the some of it related to pieces of real estate that he had prior to the marriage. Therefore, the actual forensic accounting of tracking the increase in value of this real estate was dramatic. But we did use the fact that his wife um, did have a pretty good command of the buying and selling. And we ended up using the request for admissions in an attempt to basically get wife to admit to the different transactions and to the different buying and selling and also in terms of value used when we were um, trying to identify what was in the marital pot versus what was premarital and not subject to equitable distribution. And that was very helpful because it was a massive undertaking in terms of trying to track the increase in value. So we've kind of gone from dealing with the request for admissions, which is maybe a little bit more of a unique or, or a discovery tool that's not commonly used by family law attorneys. But let's talk a little bit about the good old fashioned interrogatories and requests for productions of documents, things that we're a little bit more familiar with. And why don't you tell us a little bit about a few things that maybe we we should remind ourselves of as to how those discovery requests work, you know, really by rule more so than maybe by practice of a lot of people. Correct. Again, I think we need to be mindful of the timing of when discovery, whether that be interrogatories or requests for documents are actually served upon us. I think we should all be reminded to look at the rule, which I believe is rule 440. Anthony can correct me if I'm wrong, but the 
manner in which you serve your discovery, whether that be by original mail, facsimile, or email, we need to remind you all to be very mindful of that because the rule may not be up to date with our current times of email, using email. So I would just suggest to you all that you might want to make sure that you use the good old-fashioned U.S. mail or um, hard copy type of um, mailing for your discovery. Facsimile is certainly supported by that, but I'm not so sure that you want to send anything only by email if you're, you know, in terms of the service of interrogatories and requests for admissions. The other thing that you need to know, and I don't know, Anthony or, or Aaron, if you want to interrupt me, you know, in that little hot tip and just, you know, practice pointer. But I would also be moving on to the fact that the rules do provide when you are to respond to these different discovery requests. And if you are not going to actually be able to answer those discovery requests when within the time allotted by the rule, you better make sure that you contact your opposing counsel to get permission to have an extension of time to to respond to that discovery. Because if you do not, the rule does provide that you are foreclosed from objecting to any discovery that may be obdurate, vexatious, or not relevant to the underlying action. And you'd need to be mindful of that. A good attorney that is familiar with this rule could call you out on it. If in fact you um, answer your discovery out of time without seeking that permission to extend the time for answering, and um, that could be trouble, spell trouble for your client. Now, just with respect to discovery, however, I mean, in, in your experience, is that a very linear process, so to speak? When I, and what I mean by linear, it's that, all right, requests are served on the first day of the month. And so you know that by the first day of the very next month, you're going to get what you asked for. And the other side is that's that's just what's going to happen. I mean, in your experience, is that what happens in most cases? No, it's not, actually. I mean, do I like to think that most people know that they're duty bound to respond within, you know, 30 days or whatever it is that's prescribed by the rule? Generally not, especially if we're dealing with complex cases where it may be very difficult for somebody to hunt down the documentation within the time prescribed by the rules. But I think this is just a good practice point to make sure you're communicating with your opposing counsel that you are working diligently to get the answers and that you're not going to have all of the discovery um, responded to within that time frame. Yeah. And I think, in fact, I mean, that to a certain extent, since the trial court has substantial discretion, not absolute discretion, but substantial discretion in handling discovery disputes, that communication is helpful, right? I mean, if, if you're in court ever been standing in front of a, a trial court trying to explain how you got there, I mean, th- those communications of this is what we tried. This is what we're working on. This is when we responded with the majority of the items. This is, I mean, that that type of behavior is considered, right? I believe so. And I mean, while I would say to you, while I think it's just important to know about this rule, I would also suggest to you that despite that the rule, this rule exists, the idea, unless there is like what I would say, a real abuse of the process and that lack of communication that does exist and collegiality among attorneys, 
I would suggest to you that if there is a request or an interrogatory that you deem inappropriate and you didn't properly preserve the issue or the objection by communicating with your attorney, if it is an overly burdensome request or interrogatory, I'm not sure that, you know, you would get the, you know, if, if a judge or a discovery hearing officer would get behind you in terms of or behind the other side in terms of making a party answer an overly burdensome or really inappropriate request that you didn't protect by asking for that initial extension of time. And, and let's not forget it. In trying to comply with that 30-day window, there are a couple things within that framework that you can utilize to try to expedite the production of discovery. Uh, there are things like authorizations. You and counsel can agree on the issuing of subpoenas. So in, in some respects, taking it out of the responsibility of the parties and putting it on the financial institution or, or the, the custodian of records for that particular account, that can be helpful. Um, but I do think that you, when you referenced the methods for service, I do think that you did kind of highlight something that that we should all just consider, which is that our discovery rules have not exactly been updated on a regular basis. In, in preparing for this, I took a look at Rule 4040, and it was last amended effective July 1, 2004, which I'm sure some of us can remember that we were not necessarily using email a ton uh, in 2004, necessarily, uh, for those of us that may have been practicing law at that time. So it's probably something that bears some updating or consideration for updating, because I think a lot of us just anecdotally probably utilize email all the time. And probably some of this would even be considered as a courtesy to each other that we're doing it this way. But you're right. The rule says what it says. Correct. And it's also a good reminder to make sure that you take a, a look at your um, local rules because the, you know, your, your, your local county may have actually drilled down on these issues that haven't been updated by the state rule. Great point. Um, so let's move on a little bit to something that that is even more niche than than what we've talked about, and that is the Uniform Interstate Depositions and Discovery Act. You and I, you kind of clued me into this, Missy, um, some time ago. And as I began to look into it, it really became kind of interesting to see how it's evolved. And even just in doing research, seeing how many different states have begun to join onto this Discovery Act. And why don't you tell us a little bit about what it is and how it can be used? Okay, so the Uniform Interstate Deposition and Discovery Act. In a nutshell, it allows one state to issue subpoenas to out-of-state residents for document requests and depositions, okay? So it's a unique process, and it's important to pay attention to who might have subscribed to this Uniform Act, meaning what states actually have adopted it as their own, because depending on whether two states, meaning what I'll say home state, um, somebody who's trying to get at information from an out-of-state resident, and I'll call the other state where the out-of-state resident resides as sort of what I'll call the discovery state. So we've got home state and we've got discovery state. You need to keep track of whether or not the home state or the discovery state um, subscribe to this act. And what's important about this is that you might... Um, um, and we can get into the kind of the weeds about this, but there might be information or depositions that you need to take of people that don't reside in Pennsylvania. And there is a process in Pennsylvania, as in other states, that allows you to access this information through the subpoena process. It may require you to actually obtain local counsel in the discovery state, but it's a really an important tool for you to perhaps get information that you couldn't have otherwise gotten from other channels under the discovery umbrella. And essentially what this is, is if you, and I'll give you an example. The best example, just I think to bring it home, is let's just say there is a parent 
parent in a different state and there is a stream of gifting that occurred to one of the spouses in the home state and the parent lives in a different state and we want to track that gifting and we want to depose that parent. Okay. The first step is to is to decide whether or not in that discovery state where the parent lives um, to determine whether or not they they are a subscriber of the act. And then what you do is you can you the same way in which you would get a subpoena issued in Pennsylvania, you go through that process in Pennsylvania. And then you can, and the act does provide this, although I caution any of you trying to do any kind of work in a different state in which you are not barred. But you can, once you get that subpoena in Pennsylvania and you want to serve it, let's just say in Connecticut, you would then have to go through the process of getting that foreign subpoena registered through the equivalent of a prothonotary or clerk of court. And in this this discovery state, I'm saying Connecticut. And, um, and this is spelled out, right? I mean, And this, this is, is spelled out in the act. Um, it's spelled out in the act. Sometimes you do, there are some quirks in the, what I'll say, the discovery state that you need to be mindful of. And that's why sometimes it is important to employ local counsel. But what you need to know is that you actually, if you're trying to get a subpoena issued in a different state, simply asking for a subpoena in a, in a discovery state, it does not count as an appearance in that state. So you can, as a, an attorney not barred in a different state, actually ask for a foreign subpoena in a different state. I will never do that. I just don't trust the process because there are some iterations in different states of the Uniform Act that I think that it behooves you to basically um, refer to local counsel or the what I'll say discovery state attorney to help you with. And you do need and sometimes there is paperwork that's required to be issued um, to be issued so that that foreign subpoena can issue against that out of state resident. Okay, and so that's why local counsel is very helpful. And then once you get the discovery state to issue the subpoena, it carries on as like it would as if you were issuing a subpoena within Pennsylvania. And let's just say, okay, so that's for records. Okay, so for depositions, that's also a different little beast. Okay, you still need to make sure that you understand whether or not the state in which the resident resides is a signatory of the act. But what is also interesting is whether or not you need local counsel present for that deposition. So the deposition should occur in the discovery state, meaning the state of the resident who you're seeking to depose. The question is whether or not you actually need a licensed attorney in that discovery state to actually sit in on that deposition. So you as a Pennsylvania attorney, if you're seeking to depose somebody in a discovery state, you actually do not need local counsel present to participate in that deposition if their state is a signatory to the act. If they are not a signatory to the act, you must have somebody barred in the discovery state to sit on the deposition. But interestingly, you don't need, you are the one that would be conducting the deposition. So even though you have an attorney from a different state sitting in on the deposition, you can conduct that deposition of that out-of-state resident in the discovery state as if you were in Pennsylvania. And, and examples. So again, we, where the rubber meets the road, using this tool for, I mean, Pennsylvania divorce cases, right? I mean, I think 
you know, you certainly have experience getting called in from from other states to to assist. I don't think most of us are are gonna are gonna receive that call maybe once in a while. But for us here, practicing in Pennsylvania, where can we use this? So this is where you'll use you'll use it in. I just gave you an example of gifting, right? So if you've got a somebody that's not under the jurisdiction of Pennsylvania and you are trying to ascertain a gifting stream, if you're trying to ascertain, I also think another great place to get information is from an employer that might be out of state. Um, sometimes that's a big deal. So you're trying to get information regarding sources of income. I will tell you the other place that we've seen it is in you know transactions regarding, if you can believe it, like eBay, right? So there's these eBay providers and they operate out of state and you can serve subpoenas for records to get their information without using the very complicated, convoluted way of subpoenaing eBay, which if any of you have done that, it's nearly impossible to get any records from eBay. The other place where I think it's also valuable is if you're trying to actually locate real estate in a different state and you want to get information. Sometimes there are uh, condominium units or property um, management teams. So if somebody has a big real estate venture, you can get information from real estate holding companies or management companies. Certainly, um, if there are hidden assets that you have a, you have some some idea of, you could serve subpoenas that way. It's really about whether or not there's any, I would say, property in another state and you want to be able to get access to that information. And, also, and people that may, may lend themselves to um, information regarding our assets or income streams that aren't, you know, subject to the jurisdiction of Pennsylvania. And this tool, again, I, I think you identified a number of really good topics there. We shouldn't have to use this tool, however, if we're seeking to subpoena, you know, a bank that maybe just is headquartered in a place other than Pennsylvania, right? We shouldn't have to. Right. We so shouldn't you have to. You shouldn't have to. And the reason is, is because presumably, I mean, you might have a bank that is headquartered in a different state, but they do business in Pennsylvania. So you do not need this process to serve a subpoena on a bank that may be um, headquartered in a different state, but does business here. You can simply serve a local subpoena to a local branch of a bank in Pennsylvania. The other place, and I'm not sure, I mean, I do think it's a potential. I mean, I while I, I, do, I think custody and I, I think I think I can say this as a generality, discovery and custody is generally frowned upon. But where I have seen um, this process used, the deposition process, and I would say this, this doesn't just apply to depositions where you're trying to discover information. It could also obviously apply to trial depositions. So you might not need it for the, quote, discovery process. You actually might need it. You might already have the information that you need, but you need the you know out-of-state resident to show up to a hearing. So you can use this act to actually subpoena them for and get a trial deposition you know, under your belt. And where I have seen that, just so you know, in custody cases, I've seen it in where there are therapists that may have provided services to um, a parent or a child in a custody case, and for whatever reason, they want to basically get that canned testimony from the therapist to affirm the, you know, the the fitness of a parent um, or that a child, you know, had therapy. I've also seen it actually. I think it was 
it was actually one, um, but there are sometimes, you know, there was a paramour who had some undue influence over a child who lived in a different state. I don't know that I would have pursued that. That was actually something where I sat in on a deposition. But there's probably, if you have an imagination, there's probably a lot of different ways in which you could see using this act to your benefit. But obviously, you don't want to be too far afield of seeking information or getting trial depositions that have no you know, bearing or merit to what you may be trying to pursue on behalf of a client. Right. But the, I, I could see at least now where, at least as, as we sit here today, I, I've seen trials be much more lenient of having um, not necessarily parties, but witnesses testify remotely, right? Where pre-pandemic, it maybe would have been cost prohibitive for a, a witness who was in, say, Florida, that, you know, to the extent that you have to pay for costs and things like that to get them here, you know, now, you know, if it would make a difference, it's at least a discussion, right, with a client as to whether this person who's there, who otherwise is not going to cooperate, the ability to use this act to get them to at least participate remotely in the proceedings. Absolutely. Missy, is there any distinction given between in-person depositions and uh, video depositions, which is now very much utilized? No, I haven't. I didn't see anything. There's nothing in the act for that. But um, I mean, again, trial depositions to me are obviously conducted by video. So those are the ones where you want the canned testimony and you present it at the time of your actual trial. So no, I don't have, there is no distinction that I can see. And so in many respects, it makes the act that much more useful that now you don't necessarily have to have the burden of traveling to the jurisdiction. Uh, You can schedule virtual depositions. And I guess it's worth noting, and, and, and maybe this is just for people that haven't really considered this as a tool, but, but geographically, Pennsylvania is situated in with, we have six surrounding states, you know, real estate holdings, businesses, Delaware is right, you know, right to the south of us. And ironically enough, much of our population centers are near the borders. Anthony's over there in Harrisburg. Maryland's not too far away. As the more I've learned about this, the more I've seen the practical impact of it. And uh, and let's face it, we're in the Northeast. Uh, people live in Florida and have vacation homes in Florida. And, and that's very much, again, a useful tool. Absolutely. And with the trial deposition piece, are you seeing that as more of a tool now that we are more counties seem to be going to record hearings on things, uh, equitable distribution and support? Um, is, are you seeing that increasing in frequency? Well, you know, I think that what is also interesting about this act and actually what I think we'll also see is the, the, the competition between whether or not local jurisdictions actually adopt the ability for, you still obviously need the subpoena process to have an out-of-date resident testify. But the question becomes whether or not you'll subpoena them to appear by Zoom or some other platform, some other video conferencing platform to appear live for the hearing, as opposed to whether or not you actually get their quote trial deposition canned and then just make that part of your case when you actually do have your live hearing. I think that will be an interesting thing because I do think you also have to weigh the pros and cons of whether or not you want a live witness, right, versus one that's already been videoed and the testimony hasn't come in sort of in this live, spontaneous setting of a, of a courtroom setting. And I think what you'll find is, is that many jurisdictions are going to be more inclined to be liberal with the ability, especially that we're, we're still kind of, we're still in the pandemic and people still are scared. I think you're seeing more of a leniency and a liberty given um, by trial judges to allow for witnesses to appear by Zoom. So the question becomes, do you get the trial, uh, the deposition ahead of time, 
or do you wait to actually have that witness, you know, and subpoena them through the process um, that we've just outlined and have them come in as a live witness through a virtual platform? Great. So having covered uh, these couple of different topics, is there anything else you wanted to add or anything, any hot tips that you'd like to share with our mm. audience that might be helpful as they prosecute yeah. their cases? And and specifically, you know, Missy, what I, I'm, I'm curious, I, I mean, just, you know, we talked about these rules and, and we can dig in and, and see what they say. But it is challenging at times that, you know, we want to move cases forward. We want to do it efficiently. And I, I think there's often, you know, differences of opinion <laughs> because there's 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 more than one ways to get documents. I mean, I'm just curious in just how to how to your your approach, not necessarily generally, but in a specific situation where you send me discovery requests, I need to respond in 30 days and I give you what you can best guess is a 25% effort in, in trying to actually respond. What do you do? I mean, are, are you going to court right away? Are you, I mean, how no. you- No, and you know what? I mean, I have to say, and I don't know if I'm like most, but depending on who is on the other side, you know, I always, depending on the, what I'll say, what's at stake and what kind of level of discovery that I need, I actually always approach things trying to gauge whether or not I'm going to have a cooperative opposing party and counsel and see if I can't actually access information informally. I kind of always kind of get that's the thumb on the pulse that I always get. But the other thing that I will tell you that I do is to also try to target my discovery because I think that there's nothing more annoying than getting what I'll call the phone book of discovery, the um, what I'll say, like thoughtless, you know, paper ream of interrogatories and requests for documents where, you know, three fourths of the requests have no bearing on the <clears throat> case. And I really honestly think that's where efficiencies are to be had is right is really being thoughtful about what information it is that you need, whether you go through the informal process or the formal process. And, you know, recognizing also that some of the things that you may be asking for can't be had in a 30 day time frame. Right. So those courtesies that you show your the opposing party or the opposing counsel don't necessarily mean that you're um, some lamb and, you know, that that's out there to be slaughtered or a doormat to be walked over. But if you're a professional, you know, I think it probably has its advantages of getting, you know, sort of more more bees with honey by being appropriate with the kinds of things that you ask for and appropriate with the courtesies that you give opposing counsel and getting the information that you need. You're following up to that, you know, what do you do in the situations where you can't get the information that you need? I think as litigants, I think one of the things that we find frustrating is, you know, the discovery enforcement process is not all that easy. Right. So you still, you know, even though you might not have gotten discovery within that 30 days and I always send follow up letters and say, hey, look, I, you've passed the 30 day deadline or whatever it is. Can you know, can I expect something soon? I will, you know, after a period of time, say, OK, enough's enough and I'll follow motion. The problem is, is that I would say what nine and a half times out of 10, a motion to compel is just simply it gets listed. You know, the, the other side has bought however much time that they need to get their answers again. You go to your discovery hearing officer or judge or whatever, and you get a discovery order that says produce the documents within 20 days right, or whatever it is. They've still bought their time to delay the process. Right. So that's why, to me, the real work to be done is in that initial stage when you target what it is that you need and the courtesies that you provide and trying to actually get more so that you don't have to go through what I think is sometimes the tedious discovery enforcement process. That's just always the way that I roll. And, and, and 
Yeah, and you said the phone book. I mean, if you had just had a guess, what percentage do you see attorneys still using that old discovery form that they take out of the drawer, it's saved on their computer, and in every single case, they just send it to you? There's still a lot of people that do that. A lot. I mean, a lot enough that I, you know, I've prepared, you know, when I get it, I'm already translating it into a Word document so I can, you know, I can have my legal assistant write not applicable to 40% of the, the requests or the interrogatories. And, and, and I'm curious here is to the attorney that says, well, if I did not send you the phone book asking about every single asset, how would I know if those were there or not? Well, because we even in the process, right, like so whether we're going down the road of agreement, right, like we still have the obligation as attorneys candor to the tribunal, right, and we have to, there has to be transparency whether we get to an agreement, but even if this is going to be a contentious case where you need either, let's just say, whether it's support or equitable distribution, you need a support hearing officer or judge, or you need an equitable distributions hearing officer or judge, you still have to provide an inventory and your pretrial statement. So you're going to have to provide it whether it was whether it was or wasn't asked for in the phone book of discovery or not. And I would suggest to you that, you know, you can still call that phone book of discovery down to target every single class of asset that you can think of, right? You just don't have to make it a 112-page document, right, with all the different forms and such that are attached. I mean, you you can be thoughtful and still basically get the whole gambit of information that you're seeking in terms of whether it's a marital estate or an income stream by being thoughtful about what you ask for. Yeah, I, I would, I from a personal perspective, I would love the day where <laughs> all attorneys put thought into their discovery requests and engage in that targeted analysis of what is actually needed and in turn avoiding the time that can be yeah. spent having to respond to these. And review um, it. Forget about the fact that like if you issue that phone book of discovery, you still have to review all those answers, those non-essential answers. Like I don't want to do that. For, I don't want to have that work ahead of me either. Right. Right. For, so it works for both sides. For, right. To get to get your to get the head and, and thought and, and strategy into a case early on when you're serving discovery to be more targeted is, as to what's going on. I, I I could not agree more. And let's not forget maybe the most obvious, which is probably why we didn't discuss this, which is just talk to your client, find out what they know. An informed client is going to help lead you in the right direction as to what you need to ask for. They may be the ones that are able to tell you. Here's where my blind spot is on our financials. You know, conversely, the client that knows nothing, which I find to be a little bit more of the exception than the rule anymore, you may feel like you have to ask, as Missy said, for the for every asset class out there just to do your due diligence, just to make sure that you are covering all your bases. But that first conversation or that discovery conversation with your client can put you on the right path to try to make everybody's life a little bit easier in what you ask for. Well, absolutely. And that is to think about it. It's an expensive proposition discovery, right? So it's one of the more tedious, time consuming aspects of what we do for our clients. So to the extent that we can target target things with our client and target things with the opposing party, there's an efficiency and a um, cost savings to be had there. 
Okay. Missy, any anything else here or parting <laughs> wisdom, so to speak, with, with respect to the efficient discovery uses here in Pennsylvania? I don't think so. I mean, that, I'm really glad you gave me the opportunity to talk about that because I do think that, that the collegiality and the ability to basically work with your opposing counsel in a way that doesn't mean that you're dropping the, the hat of advocacy for your client, but one in which advances the ball to a conclusion and a fair resolution to me is just something that has to be underscored because I think there's a real value in it for sure. Well, thank you. Anyway, Missy, thank you so much for joining us here today to talk about discovery. And we hope all the listeners here uh, continue to follow us and listen to our podcast here in the future. Thank you. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much. Law and the Family is a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section. To learn more or to join the section, visit the Pennsylvania Bar Association website at pabar.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And to catch up on every episode, join us at anchor.fm slash law in the family. A reminder that nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the guests and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Thanks for listening and tune in for future podcasts.